you've never been asked a question like this before. I mean, you've had to navigate some, <clears throat> some tough questions. Uh, <clears throat> questions like, do you really think we have a football team this year in Edmonton? Three wins in a row? Have you ever seen the despair like the despair of the Brazilian team? Did you clean your room? Not as difficult. Are you prepared for the next exam? <clears throat> Can we go out for a date on Saturday? Or even bigger ones than that? What will be my career path? Will you marry me? We have four children. Would you now like to adopt two more? Sizable questions. These are questions that set the direction for your whole life. You've been asked some big questions, but <clears throat> none like this. This question has teeth to it, especially because it comes from Jesus. You might brace yourself. Here it comes. It comes from Jesus, and it's a question for you. Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Is he serious? It's obvious he's serious. He means it. In the storm of life out on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, he asked that question. Why are you afraid? The boat is about to be swamped. And yet this question? Imagine how this question hits the disciples. I mean, they feel like life is coming to a conclusion fast. They're going to die. It's all over. And you ask, why are you afraid? Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and, the, and he said to the waves, Silence, be still. And suddenly the wind stopped. And there was a great calm. And then he asked them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? We do get tested along life's pathway. Many people have the idea that storms come to their lives only when they have disobeyed God. But that's not always the case. Jonah ended up in a storm because of his disobedience. But the disciples got into a storm because of their obedience to the Lord. He was the one that told them to go to the other side. Did Jesus know that the storm was coming? Of course he did. The storm was part of the day's lesson. It would help the disciples understand a lesson that they perhaps didn't even know that they needed to learn. That Jesus can be trusted in the storms of life. The storm described in Mark chapter 4 must have been especially fierce if it frightened experienced fishermen like the disciples. The disciples were absolutely stressed right out when the storm was upon them. 
This week, uh, I randomly asked a gentleman from TCC, without any warning, why are you afraid? I guess I was testing the question, and actually I surprised myself that I asked it like that because I hadn't given it a moment's thought. I just asked it. And he looked at me, and he had an immediate answer. He surprised me. Do you know what he replied? He said, I'm afraid that if I was put in a position like Job was, where he lost everything, all of his possessions, all of his resources, his whole family, that I would not be able to come through it. I don't know how Job did it. In the absence of no family support, friends that lack godly perspective, I'm afraid that I would not be like Job. I'm afraid that I could not handle that. Wow, that was profound. Without but a second's notice. He must have been pondering that. What a response. Why are you afraid? Well, isn't there some good reason to be afraid? Have you tuned into the world headlines? By now, ISIS are familiar letters to us. The letters represent the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. Where did this militant group arise from? Now suddenly it controls territory greater than, than the size of many countries. And it now rivals Al-Qaeda as the world's most powerful jihadist group. This is a militant, brutal regime that is seizing territory in Syria and Iraq and setting up their kingdom. From out of nowhere, it's now a little country. Why are you afraid? Three seminary students in Israel were kidnapped and, and, and killed, teenagers. Retaliation from Israel count, caused a counter-response from the Hamas. Revenge for revenge, revenge for revenge. Now the rockets are flying into Israeli territory, a hundred rockets a day. Israel is bombing Hamas in Gaza. Bloodshed abounds. 40,000 Israeli reservists have been called up. Tanks are amassing near Gaza. Suddenly, the Middle East is a powder keg again. Why are you afraid? Now we have a chemist from Saudi. From Saudi. Ibrahim Eshan Ezziri. Assadist chemist who has become highly efficient and effective at making bombs. He comes up with increasingly imaginative ways to conceal explosives. His latest is called the invisible bomb. He can figure out how to, how to put a bomb in your iPad and for it basically to be undetected. And next week he puts the invisible bomb in a camera. He was the one responsible for planting a bomb on a young fellow known as the underwear bomber. He's getting better and better and better at what he does with the invisible bomb. Why are you afraid? The worry is that a series of skillfully disguised bombs might be carried on transatlantic airlines by passport holders from the U.S. and Europe. You could be carrying it in your luggage and you don't know it why are you afraid how many of you have been on an airplane already this summer 
the, uh, the little spiel, you know, listening to the speech about fastening your seatbelts, where nobody pays attention. It's kind of like, lift up your heads. He's talking. She's talking. No, we're all busy doing our thing. There's a little illuminated sign up there by the control of the airflow. When it's illuminated, that means keep your seatbelts fastened. When the fasten your seatbelt sign comes on, it means one of three things. You're taking off, you're landing, or you're experiencing turbulence in midair. All three are critical times during a flight. Why? Because all three are transitions. In the case of taking off, we know exactly what to expect. In the case of landing, we know exactly what to expect. But in mid-flight, when the fasten your seatbelt sign comes on, you just don't know. You can't see what the pilot sees. Why is the pilot asking us to buckle up? It makes you a little nervous as to what's coming. And I hate when it goes on midway across the ocean. I try to calculate, how far are we here? If it's really bad, should we turn around and go back? Should we just keep booting it to get to the other side? As if I will make that decision. It could be that the fasten your seatbelt sign has come on for you personally. There's been some serious stuff in your family. The doctor called. The boss called you in and said, that's it. Your marriage is at risk. In a congregation this size, you can look at the master control panel and the seatbelt sign is coming on all over the place. The lights are blinking. Well, from a prison in Rome comes this word from Paul. Every generation has appreciated this assuring word, and it speaks to us today. We need to hear this word today, and it flows into a hundred different contexts. If you've read this a thousand times, just imagine that this is the first time you're hearing it. Verse 6 of Philippians chapter 4. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. And thank Him for all He's done. And then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Remember the context. Paul is in prison in Rome saying these words to a church 700 miles away, four months travel away. Paul is staring down the barrel of extermination for himself personally, for his faith. If the Roman Emperor Nero has his way, there will be no church left. He would like to obliterate it. And it's this man who writes these words to his friends in Philippi. Do not worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He's done. Now, you can be sure that Paul was doing the very thing that he was writing. That he was praying about everything. That he was speaking to himself. 
of the fasten your seatbelt sign was on in his life. But Paul was thanking God for all that he had done. And he was experiencing God's peace. Now I want to ask this morning, how do you get the seatbelt light to come off? How do you get it to come off? Paul has the best advice that you'll find anywhere in the world. And it's right here. And I tell you, it works. If you've tried it, you know it, that it works, that it works, that it works. The text is straightforward. Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7. Here's Paul's counsel. Center your hearts on God. Center your hearts on God. We might just call it prayer, but there's a danger that we'll not really understand how this takes place. So it's being a little more specific. The imperative here is don't worry about anything. Don't worry about anything. I won't have you put up your hand, but let me ask you, are you feeling a little anxious these days? Got a situation in your life that you're dealing with? You can feel the acid at work in your stomach. Seatbelt sign on? I know, I know. Perhaps we try to dodge the question. Don't ask me that. But no, just being straightforward here. Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? What is worry? Corey touched on it. The Greek word translated anxious in some of our versions means to be pulled in different directions. It's the uh, picture of uh, a tug-of-war. And it's uh, just this sense that something's tugging on us this way and we're trying to move it over in this direction. Our hope pulls us in one direction and our fear pulls us in the opposite direction and we're pulled apart. The old English word from which we get our word worry means to strangle. It's an apt description. Worry feels like it, it strangles us. It does keep us up at night. Or it gets up for us early in the morning because we can't sleep. Five o'clock, we're done. It's time to get up. Worry affects our body. More headaches. Ulcers. Back pain. It affects our digestion. Even our coordination. And worry is a thief. It robs us. Worry is an inside job, stealing from ourselves, stealing our joy, stealing our peace, stealing our health, stealing our relationships. Oh yes, worry is a thief, out to take as much from you as it possibly can. But Paul says we can catch the thief. I like that. We can catch the thief. We can lock him up for the rest of our lives. But how? Don't worry about anything. What? Suddenly we're out in the boat again with the wind and the wave about to swamp our, our, our boat. Don't worry about anything. And with one brush, Paul covers every part of your life. You got it all covered. Don't worry about anything. What's there left to worry about? Nothing. Paul. Pray about everything, he says. 
Pray about everything. Pray. Now, there's a lot summarized under the word prayer. What is prayer? And we use the acronym ACTS. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And Paul is specific on the requests and the thanksgiving. We're coming to that. So in his threefold description of prayer, we believe the first part is a reference to worship and adoration. Whenever we find ourselves worrying, our, our first action ought to be to get alone with God and to worship Him. Adoration is what is needed. Praise is what is needed. Rejoice, like we read in verse 4 of this same chapter. You see, worship allows us to get perspective. It's like Peter stepping out of the boat, and when he looked down and he saw this turbulent sea, he got very, very nervous. But when he looked up and he saw Jesus, he got confident. Now, isn't that why Sunday worship uh, is very helpful in the life of a follower of Jesus? Because if you're like me, we all tend to get our eyes off the one who rescues us. We get our eyes off the one who cares for us. But when we come on Sunday and we allow our hearts to enter into worship, the Holy Spirit is always faithful to readjust our vision. I love it. I love how He readjusts us. And as we sing these wonderful songs of praise, worship refocuses us. It adjusts our thinking. It brings us back to what is true. We worship a God who is awesome. He's a great God, and we're reminded of that in a, on a beautiful day like this. We go outside and we walk and we enjoy God's beautiful creation, and we're reminded that this is who our God is. But we are easily distracted, and before long we find ourselves being tuned into ourselves. And we find ourselves that I've been looking at the problem but you say, don't we have to look at the problem? You have to look at the problem, but only to be realistic. Only to know that our God is bigger. Because sometimes we look at the problem, and it looks so big to us, that the immediate thing that we do is we run, and we hide, and we get away, and we forget who the one that is really strong in our lives is. I appreciated our speaker last Sunday, Jos Pickard. He basically asked, how is this church a gift to our community? And I've been asking that question all week long. Are we a gift to this community? If we were not to exist, would we be missed in our community? We may feel overwhelmed by the task of being a gift to the community, making a difference in our community. But instead of being worried about it, we say to the Lord, lead us by your Holy Spirit, and where you take us, we will go. We will not have to figure this out as to where we should be and how we should do it, but we will follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. So instead of being overwhelmed, why not trust ourselves to the faithful leadership of the Holy Spirit and simply do what He tells us? Simply go where He wants us to go. Simply be what He wants us to be. And when God gives another green light, when we turn our eyes to Him and we move, we move forward with confidence and faith and hope. We do our homework. We do our planning. We look to God. We trust Him. We see Him for who He is, high and lifted up. He is the awesome, mighty God. And as we sang this morning, if God is for us, who can be against us? So when worry comes to visit, the first thing is to worship and not to run. To worship 
and not to run. Because when you worship, you gain perspective and you gain faith and trust and confidence. Worship, praise, adoration, honor the one who is Lord of all, honor him. The second thing is to tell God what you need. That's how Paul says it. Tell God what you need. I love it. Just so simple. Paul says, tell God what you need. What's on your heart? What's on your heart? Present your request to God. Let your request be made known to God. Literally, it means reveal the mystery of your request. Something that unfolds that was not previously known. So the idea is not to inform God, because he already knows, but to discover what it is that you are really after. What are you really after? And verbalize that to God. Learn and unearth what it is that you fear and what it is you desire. And then tell it to God. The focus here is on revealing what's on the inside of us. Pour out to God what's inside of you. And I think a good biblical example is Hannah. She wanted a son. And as she's praying to the Lord in 1 Samuel chapter 1, Eli the priest was watching her and thought she'd been drinking. No, she said, I haven't been drinking wine. I'm discouraged. Oh, there it is. I'm discouraged. I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. I've been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. Oh, Eli said, I didn't know. Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the request you have asked of him. Oh, thank you, sir, she explained. And then she went back and she began to eat again, and she was no longer sad. She was discouraged. When we were able to discover and give to God these deep, otherwise unknown desires, something happens. Lord, I need a job. What are you afraid of? What if you don't get a job? Well, Lord, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm afraid for my family. I'm afraid for my reputation. And then you hear God whisper, I can handle that. In your prayers of uncertainty, pray this. Lord, I, I need you to, if you don't, I'm afraid. This is about placing into God's hands what only God's hands are capable of carrying. So be very honest, transparent before God. What are you afraid of? What's down deep? Get it out. Verbalize it. Tell God your fears. Put it right into his hands. And then thank him for all he's done. Thank him for all he's done. That's the third part of the prayer. It's quite amazing. Written from the hand of Paul. In the midst of worship, in the midst of laying out your heart and asking him, be careful to thank him for all that he has done. You know, when you're being thankful, you're really worshiping. The hound of worry was snapping at Paul's heels. The hounds were after him. Fear, uncertainty about the future, persecution, physical disease, mental anguish. Yet he, he says... Now be careful not to miss this. Be careful to thank him for all he's done. The father enjoys hearing his children 
say thank you. When Jesus healed ten lepers, only one of the ten returned to say thank you, Jesus. Is the percentage about the same today? One in ten? How's the percentage in our own lives? Every day do we stop for a moment to say, Thank you, God. Oh, you've been good to me. You've been good to me. Look at all I have because of you. I so appreciate it. I'm alive today. Thank you for another day to live and know your heart and serve you. Thank you, Lord. You see, gratitude changes our perspective. And all of this together is prayer, worship, letting God know our hearts and our requests and our thanksgiving. And together they have a terrific result, peace, verse 7. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. You'll remember that Paul under Roman, was under Roman guard day and night. And I wonder if this is what he had in mind when he wrote this. In like manner, the peace of God stands guard over the two areas that create worry, over the heart and over the mind. Daniel was told that he could not pray to the, his God anymore. Everyone had to pray to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar. But when, David, when Daniel went to his room and opened his windows and prayed as before, the result that came upon him was a perfect peace in the midst of difficulty. It got him into trouble. It did. It took him to the lion's den. But even there in the lion's den, there was peace. There was peace. And so let me say this, that sometimes the external doesn't change a whole lot. We would love for the external to change. And sometimes it does. But the internal is quite different. There is a quiet confidence that appears regardless of circumstances or people or things, is the peace of God. It's the wonderful peace of God. So the seatbelt comes off when we, when we pray. There is a peace that is beyond comprehension. You know what I'm talking about. When you experience that, you say with Paul, I felt that too. I felt that too. It's a wonderful thing. I would have tended to be really uptight in this situation, but this amazing peace, this amazing peace filled my heart. It's the peace of God. You can't buy it. You can't borrow it. It's a gift, but it's a gift that comes through prayer. The seatbelt comes off when we pray. And then secondly and finally, the seatbelt comes off when we monitor our thoughts. Here it is in verse 8. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. Wow. Verse 8 is just loaded. The bottom line here is, you are what you think. You are what you think. The body of evidence grows almost daily. Yet we all kind of have to figure this out and sort this through for ourselves. We are what we think. Sour attitudes create sour souls and sour bodies 
bitterness, self-pity, distorts living, and clouds our perspective. We have to be careful with our thoughts so that we experience God's peace. If we don't control our thought life, we leave the door open to be robbed. There's a lot of power in a thought. Maybe that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5 that we must bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Our thoughts control us. Ralph Emerson once said, you become what you think about all day long. You become what you think about all day long. Kind of scary. What if you're thinking negative, unhelpful, impure, violent thoughts? It's scary what you become. King Solomon said, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. What do you think about all day? When you wake up in the morning, what thoughts go through your mind? What do you think about during the first few minutes of the day and, 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 and what you actually put into your mind in those first days kind of set the pace for the entire day. You could begin each day by saying, this is the day the Lord has made. I'm above ground. My heart's beaten. So it's a great day. I got many great things to look forward to today. Today I'm going to make progress on my problems. Today God is going to be with me every step of the way. Today God will, will cause all things to work together for good. Today God will give the opportunity to serve Him in some capacity. Today I'll encourage my family. Today I will show God's love to everyone I meet. Do you see how empowering that is? If you point your thoughts in the right direction at the beginning of the, of the day, you squeeze out worry. And what should I think about? Paul gives eight filters to run your thoughts through. Those filters will reject certain thoughts. They will prevent us from putting a bunch of junk in our minds. Some of the stuff that's in our viewing range just doesn't get through the filter. Some of the stuff that's in our hearing range gets absolutely blocked out. We don't let it into our minds because it only gives the worry thief some ammunition. So think about things that are excellent. Think about things that are worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all that you've, you've learned and, and received from me. Everything you, you learned, heard from me and saw me doing. And Paul says, then the God of peace will be with you. You've never been asked a question like this before. The question has teeth in it because it comes from Jesus. Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Let's stand together. Father, I'm reminded this morning of your word that says that perfect love casts out fear. And when our hearts are overflowing with your love, there's simply no more room for fear. Lord, I, I pray for us this morning as we've gathered. We have no idea of the load that some right here this morning are carrying. 
we have no idea of how true this is in some hearts even today. And so I pray today, Holy Spirit, that you would give each person a picture of your sufficiency, that we would all be able to cast our cares upon you, knowing that you care for us. We, we rejoice in you, Lord. We come rejoicing in our confidence in who you are. And Lord, we would monitor our world and our words so we think about the things that really honor you and we filter the things that distract us from you. Help us even this week to be reminded again that you are the one that we turn our thoughts to and, and rejoice in and find our strength in. Minister to us through your spirit, we pray.